Charles Spurgeon says in his lectures to my students, Brethren, I beseech you, keep your churches cold so that people stay awake to listen. <laughs> so we are obeying Charles Spurgeon today. Hopefully, um, I'll be speaking about some warm-hearted preachers and maybe um, some warmth will come from this pulpit as well. Pray God that it will. Um, what I'm about to do in three hours with you today is a condensed version of my class at Puritan Reform, which is 39 hours. So I'm, I'm trying to reduce this about 95%. I'm going to try to give you the, the, the main takeaways of what experiential preaching is. And uh, please understand from the beginning that preaching must always be, as I'm sure you know, biblical, doctrinal, and practical. And uh, hopefully, hopefully all of us are doing that. But the one dimension of preaching that is often neglected today is what we call experiential preaching. So I'm just going to focus on just that one aspect of preaching today. And as I say, I have a whole course on it because I believe it's a very, very important dimension of preaching. And in my book, it's the subtitle of my book on the subject is called Preaching from the Heart of the Preacher to the Heart of the Hearer. We have to reach not only our hearers' minds, but also their souls. And I'm going to explain in this first hour, uh, try to explain, what it is. And I'll look at a number of characteristics of it. And then in the second hour, I'm going to just pick one Puritan. It's going to be John Bunyan. And I'll talk about how he preached experientially. And then the second part of the second talk, I want to talk to you about what kind of a man preacher must be to preach experientially effectively. And then in the third talk, we want to cross the bridge from the past to today and say, how do we preach effectively by the grace of God in an experiential way today? So that's, that's where we're going in these three lectures. Uh, let me please turn with me to Romans 7. Romans 7, I'll read verses 22 to 25, and then I want to pick up on the last verses of Romans 8 <coughs> as well. Romans seven twenty-two. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And then... Romans 8, you know Romans 8 begins with these wonderful words, there's now therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. It ends with, there is no separation. Verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord God, we lift up this first session today to thee, and we ask that thou wouldst give me clarity in explaining what our forefathers meant by experiential or experimental preaching. 
And uh, by the end of this session, we would not only have a good grasp of it, but we would also be able to be thinking through our own sermons for those who are preachers or for lay people or office bearers, for those who do preach, that we would be uh, examining ourselves and asking ourselves, how can we better approach preaching from the heart of the preacher to the heart of the hearer? So Lord, please be with us in this hour and help us to to learn things new from things old and that we may build on what we already know about preaching and stretch ourselves and really learn more and more how to reach the needy saint, the assured child of God and the unbeliever in the pew with the word of God. So that sermons take on a real life in the hearts and lives of those who hear us. Sermons that must be done and not just be spoken. Sermons that must examine us, that discriminate and that apply the word at every hand so that we leave the house of prayer after each sermon saying, Truly God has been in the midst of us today and he has a message for me and this needs to change in my life or, or that needs to change or, or I need to think differently about this particular truth or I need that truth to, to impact my life in a much more powerful way than it has hitherto. So be with us, Lord, and help us to... Uh, really expound this uh, very important dimension of preaching in this hour and throughout this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, until the mid-19th century, Reformed preachers were commonly labeled as experiential or experimental preachers. Calvin himself used, uh, used both terms. And in this first talk, <clears throat> I want to first define what I mean by it. And then we want to look at uh, probably six to eight characteristics of Reformed experiential preaching. So first then, the term. <clears throat> the term experimental you see the word experiment there, actually derives from a Latin verb, experior, which means to, to try or to put to the test. Think uh, of the field of science, you have a hypothesis, you put it to the test and you find out whether it's true, yes or no. And so the idea is in experimental preaching that you put your hearers to the test, as well as yourself. But the test is not a human hypothesis. The test is the Word of God. The test is Isaiah 8 verse 20. If they speak not according to this Word, it is because there is no light in them. And so we bring to bear, we bring to bear the Word of God on our hearers And they are to examine themselves in the light of that word and then ask themselves, what do I need to do with this sermon? How do I need to change as a result of this sermon? Where do I need to grow? And where, where, by the grace of God, am am I doing quite well? Where are my strong points and my weak points in my Christian life? Now, because experimental preaching then deals with the experience of the Christian. The other word that came to really mean the same thing is experiential preaching, with a focus a little bit more on the word experience. That is, the minister must proclaim from the pulpit how the Holy Spirit works 
genuine experience in the soul, as the Heidelberg Catechism would say, the experience of my sin and misery, the experience of deliverance in Christ, and the experience of wholehearted gratitude to God for such a great deliverance. Experiential actually has the same root word in Latin, so we can split hairs and say they're a tad bit different, but actually they have the really the same essential meaning. And to explain that word, I, I want to just really begin with a little illustration that happened in my life that I think will open the window a bit and I'll, I'll develop it from there. I was one of the uh, last year candidates for the lottery system in America, which went by your birthday. And if you got a low number for your birthday, you were required to enter the military. And uh, I got a very low number, so I entered the military. But I, I signed up for the Army Reserves because I felt called to the ministry. I wanted to make the active duty time as short as possible. So that's a, a period of six months, and then you have six years of meetings in which you could be called back into active duty. Well, on the day that I concluded the six months and I was heading back for home, my boss said something kind of interesting to me. He said, uh, well, I hope, I hope when you leave that uh, you'll be careful and that you'll be helped. And, and I said, oh, yes, sir. I said, I've got, a, I've got a great God. And he says, yeah, we've got Uncle Sam to protect us here, meaning, meaning the, the, the army, and we had a little chat about that. And then he said to me something I never forgot. He said, you've got to remember, if you get called back up to come back to fight in a war, three things. You've got to remember, first of all, how the war should go. You've been trained to fight. You've got to remember what you've learned, how the war should go. Secondly, you've got to remember that wars never go the way they should go. Wars are bloody. They take twists and turns. So you've got to remember, if you ever get called to fight in war, you've got to be realistic about the situation you're in at the moment. And you've got to improvise. You've got to change the idealistic plan sometimes. And thirdly, you've got to remember the end goal. You're fighting for Uncle Sam. You're fighting for the United States flag. So that's the way he was talking to me. And I, of course, respectfully agreed with him and uh, thanked him for his advice and said goodbye to him. Afterwards, I started thinking about that. You know, there's so much parallel here with experiential preaching. Because from the pulpit, we're really talking to our people about spiritual warfare, aren't we? We're all engaged in a kind of spiritual warfare. And so, the preacher must do three things as the leader who speaks to the people about that spiritual warfare when it comes to the aspect of experiential preaching. First, he must bring to the congregation how the Christian life ought to go. How this war ought to go. It ought to go the way of Romans 8. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There's no separation. All things work together for good. We have the Holy Spirit teaching us how to pray. We're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Who's going to condemn us? Christ is risen. He's interceding at the right hand of the Father. I'm persuaded that no one can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the way the Christian ought to live. And we ought to lift up our people to show them how we ought to live in victory in Christ, more than conquerors through him that loved us. At the same time, we all know, don't we, that we're not 
always there. In fact, many times our soul is encamped in Romans 7. The good that I would, I find myself not doing. The evil that I would not do, I find myself doing. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? We lose many skirmishes in the war. The war doesn't go the way, the spiritual war doesn't go the way that we had hoped it would go. We still are battling indwelling sin. We still have weaknesses, blind spots. And so the preacher must also preach, may I say it this way, Romans 7. The battles of the soul against sin. The struggles. Sometimes the feelings. The backslidings. The return from backslidings. So he must preach not only how the Christian life ought to go, but also how it does go. So that he resonates with the people of God where they're at. Now, some preachers will only preach about how it ought to go. Always in Romans 8, that type of chapter. Always victory in the Christian life. No, no, No words about the struggles in sanctification, the struggles of inward spiritual warfare. What does that do to a congregation when you only do, number one, Well, I would assert with you that the end result then will be that people will actually, who embrace that kind of preaching, actually have a very optimistic, cheerful view of the Christian life and the Christian experience. They'll be happy in the Lord in some ways. Because, wow, it's just all victory. It's wonderful. But they won't have a lot of depth because they won't see deeply into their own heart, their own depravity, their own need for the constant graces of the Holy Spirit. And you may well, you may well actually have many nominal believers in the church who really don't know Christian experience at all, but just want to feel good. They feel good after you preach because everything is just optimism. Everything is happy, happy. If, however, you preach only the way that it does go, and you don't preach the way it ought to go, you may then leave the child of God content with wallowing in his misery and in his need and in his battles so that the child of God says, well, this is just what the Christian life is. There's really nothing more. And you're not going to be stretching him, spurring him on, to see that he really has victory in Christ through Christ's passive and active obedience and his intercession at the right hand of the Father. So really what you need to do is you need to do both. But also, an experiential preacher will be one who's often preaching about heaven, about the future goal of of the child of God. We're on our way to everlasting glory. This life is just but a moment, a drop in the bucket, a cloud that comes and disappears, a flower that booms and fades. Life is very, very short. And we need to tell our people that. And we have only one tiny window to prepare for a never-ending eternity. So we want to hear about our future home, our ever, ever, everlasting home, if we're a child of God. So we want to preach, may I say it this way, Revelation 21, the glories of the future life. So now, what's a working definition of experiential preaching? Well, experiential preaching seeks to explain, in terms of the work of the Spirit in the soul, The biblical truths about how matters ought to go in the Christian life, Romans 8, how they do go, Romans 7, and the end goal, Revelation 21. So in other words, experiential preaching addresses the entire range of Christian living. Focusing heavily on a believer's spiritual well-being and maturity. 
And it doesn't only, it doesn't only apply the truth to his soul, and his soul condition, that first and foremost, but also through practical experiential applications. You see, you examine the soul also in relationship, not just to God, but to those around you. So it impacts your family life, it impacts your marriage, it impacts the entire range of Christian living with the church and with the world around you. Experiential preaching is not just navel-gazing. Experiential preaching is an entire world-life Christian view. And it asks the question, are we growing in the grace of God? Are we growing in our spiritual well-being and maturity? And with the Spirit's blessing, the mission of such preaching is to transform the believer in all that he is and does to become more and more like the Savior. Last couple days we've been in a guest house and this morning we had a um, nice little chat with a woman of the home and uh, she asked what we were doing here and so on. So I, I told her, told her we was going to speak today about experiential preaching and she wanted to know what that was and I explained it to her and she goes, yeah, that's, that's what we need today. That's what we need today. She said, I go to so many church services and I don't know what to do with the sermon. And, and the sermon is just intellectual. It feeds my mind. And I agree with it. I, I, I get to know a few more things, but it doesn't touch my heart. And the preacher doesn't move my affections. And it doesn't relate to the experience of my life. So, wow. <laughs> That's exactly right. With so much preaching, not just in South Africa. It's all over America today. Also among Reformed preachers. It can be cerebral. Yes, we need cerebral preaching to a certain degree. But preaching that stops there... It doesn't reach down into the heart and the affections and the work of the spirit and the soul and from that impact the life in all my relationships. Preaching that doesn't give me something to do, something to examine myself by, something to resolve is not experiential preaching. There's a quaint story, Scottish story, I love to tell this story. It's about a man who came home from church 10 minutes early one day. The preacher was a little shorter than usual. And his wife was uh, at home, sick. And she heard the back door. And she said, uh, Donald, is that you already? Is the sermon done? Ah, he said, yes, my dear, it's me. The sermon has been spoken. It has yet to be done. See, that's the point. That's the point. And if you're an experiential preacher, you'll be able to identify with this. You pour out your heart on the pulpit. You're, you're preaching to your people about things of eternity. You're preaching to them about their eternal well-being of their never, never, never dying soul. And you walk out in the vestibule and you walk by a couple people that are talking about the score of a ball game last week. And your heart just smites you. Oh Lord, what did I do wrong? Did I not reach them? How can they go directly from life and death issues, eternal issues of their never dying soul and talk about the score of some measly rotten little ball game? You see, preaching is to have impact on people. It's to change their lives. It's to change their conversation. It's to bring them face to face with eternal realities. Now, just to illustrate this, I want to read to you one paragraph here. This is from a Baptist preacher, 1850, Francis Wayland. Now, around 1830 or 40 in America was the time of Charles Finney coming in and preaching his shallow, free will, man-made revivalism and uh, really did a lot to destroy experiential reform preaching 
in, in America. And Francis Whalen is complaining about this experiential preaching disappearing from many pulpits and preachers adopting the man-made style of Charles Finney by 1850. Imagine if Francis Wayland, who's the preacher I'm quoting here, were alive today. He'd say this about ten times stronger. But what I want to read to you is this paragraph is because he's actually describing a whole bunch of elements of experiential preaching that are largely missing from most pulpits today. So here we go. This is all like two or three sentences. But just, just sit back and listen to this. From the manner in which our ministers entered upon their work in the past, it was evident that it must have been the prominent object of their lives to convert men to God by God's grace. They were remarkable for what was then called experimental preaching. And then here comes the definition. They told much of the exercises of the human soul under the influence of the truth of the gospel. The feeling of a sinner while under the convicting power of the truth. The various subterfuges to which he resorted when aware of his danger. The successive applications of truth by which he was driven out of all of them. The despair of the soul when it found itself wholly without a refuge. Its final submission to God and simple reliance on Jesus Christ. The joys of the new birth and the earnestness of the soul to introduce others to the happiness which it has now for the first time experienced. The trials of the soul, when it found itself an object of reproach and persecution among those whom it loved best. The process of sanctification with all its ups and downs, and yet progressive. The devices of Satan to lead us into sin. The mode in which the attacks of the adversary may be resisted. The dangers of backsliding with all of its evidences and the means of recovery from it. These are the things that we now see in the new class of preachers that seem to be passing away. You see how different experiential preaching is from what we often hear today. The Word of God is too often preached today in a way that will not transform listeners because it fails to discriminate the saved from the unsaved and it fails to apply the Word personally to each hearer. And then preaching is often reduced to a lecture or to an exegesis session, maybe to a Sunday school lesson, or a demonstration, or a catering of what people want to hear, or the kind of subjectivism that is divorced from the foundation of Scripture. But it fails to explain biblically what the Reformed forefathers called vital religion. Vital religion. Living religion in the heart. How a sinner is stripped of his righteousness, driven to Christ alone for salvation, living out of Christ... For all his hope, his treasure, his Lord, and his God. It fails to show how a redeemed sinner encounters the internal plague of his soul and battles against sin and gains victory by faith in Christ. It fails to do what Paul said preaching must do in Romans 1.16. It's the power of God unto salvation that transforms men and nations. That was the beauty of Reformed preaching and Puritan preaching. <laughs> thousands and thousands of people were transformed in their hearts, in their lives, by the preaching. That's what we need again. We need preaching that reflects the vital experience of the children of God to the glory of God, clearly explains the marks and fruits of saving grace necessary for a believer to know, and sets before the believer and the unbeliever alike their eternal futures. So much then for a definition of experiential preaching. Let me look with you now at some of the characteristics and sweep away some of the caricatures 
of experiential preaching. By the way, I don't often use the word experimental because it's no longer even in the dictionary uh, in the sense in which it was used. So I just use experiential, but, but both, are, both are legit. So this is the main part of my address then. Characteristics of experiential reformed preaching. Number one, experiential reformed preaching is always Bible-centered and Christ-centered. Always. Bible-centered and Christ-centered. So it focuses on God's written word, the Bible, and his living word, Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 3.15 says that God gives preachers to his people to feed them with knowledge and understanding. So yes, preaching must aim at the intellect. There must be sound exegetical and hermeneutical principles used. Proper preaching does not just tack on an experiential part of the sermon to the text being preached. All experiential preaching, that dimension of preaching, must flow out of the text that's being expounded on that occasion. And that's what gives experiential preaching its rich variety. Because each text has a different emphasis. So if you're going to preach on Jeremiah 3.14, Return unto me, O backsliding children, for I married unto you, you're going to preach a sermon experientially about how a sinner backslides and how that sinner returns to the Lord. That's, that sermon is going to focus particularly on the experiential dimension of backsliding and its remedy. The minister must bring, therefore, the sincere milk of the word in order that by the Spirit's blessing, experiential preaching will foster true conviction of sin, true refuge-taking faith to Christ, and true growth in sanctification and gratitude. So according to Isaiah 8.20, all of our beliefs, including all of our experiences, must be tested by the touchstone of Holy Scripture. Martin Luther said, if you can't find your experience back in the Word of God, your experience is from the devil and not from the Holy Spirit. Well, Luther said everything strongly. <laughs> but really, there's, there's truth in this, isn't there? We're not talking about experience for experience sake. That's not experiential preaching. Experiential preaching is one dimension of preaching that we utilize in bringing home the text we're expounding for that occasion to the hearts of our hearers. Now, but you know what, maybe the best thing I can do is just give you an example off the top of my head. And uh, let, me, let, me, let me just do this, because that might explain it better than anything else. So I'm, I'm thinking right now, I just preached recently on the intercession of Christ. So here's a, here's a cerebral preaching of the intercession of Christ. Uh, dear church family, this is, this is a wonderful doctrine for us to contemplate. We, sh we should know that Jesus is always at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. And that is comforting for us, because he never, he never forgets us. And that intercession is a time in which he is pleading on his blood to the Father to keep us in the salvation he has merited for us. Now, if you were a theological teacher and you were grading each part of my sermon, what grade would you give me for that right there? I'd probably give me a C minus. Nothing I said was untrue. But I didn't bring it home to your heart, did I? I didn't move you. You're not going to go out and say, oh man, I remember those four sentences. Now, let's preach it experientially. Uh, God helping me in this minute. Dear church family, the intercession of Christ is one of the most wonderful and beautiful doctrines that you can ever experience in the depth of your soul. Have you ever been brought to a time in your life where you could scarcely pray? You were so overwhelmed with troubles and trials 
And yet, you cried out to God. Maybe you could only get the word Lord out of your mouth because you're so overwhelmed. But you cried out in the inner man to God, Lord Jesus, I'm at my wit's end in prayer. Do thou pray for me. And do you realize what a comfort that is for a believer? When you may know that Christ is praying for you every single second, Hebrews 7.25, he ever lives to make intercession for us. Moment by moment by moment, there's never a second he's not remembering you at the right hand of God. How in the world does he do that? Well, he's infinite. He remembers all his people at once in one corporate group, but he remembers each one at the same time as if you were his only child. What a comfort that is. Not just in times of trouble, also in times of closeness with Christ. He's remembering me. He's remembering me. Yes, Hebrews 13.5 puts it this way. Never, no, never, no, never will he forsake me. A five-fold negative that it means a, a double, double, double positive that breaks all the boundaries of Greek grammar. It is impossible for the Savior ever to forget you if you're a true believer. This makes all the difference. I can get up out of bed in the morning and say, Oh Lord, help me to live to thy glory today. And thank you, Lord, for remembering me always. I will walk and live today, God helping me, with a consciousness that Jesus is remembering me every single second. Praise God for the intercession of Christ. You hear the difference? Do you? I hope you do. See, one is preaching to the mind, and the other is preaching to the mind and the soul and the affections. But they're both preaching the word. So experiential preaching is always word-based. Word-based. But it's also Christ-centered. It leads us to Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 16, Paul says that good exegesis is not only grammatical and historical, but also spiritual and is the work of the Spirit that has to come forward that takes the things of Christ and reveals them to sinners. Jesus himself said, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. So the great theme and controlling contour of experiential preaching is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ in his offices, in his states, in his natures, uh, in his person, in his names, in his glory. What I just gave you as a, as a three-minute sample was, of course, Jesus Christ in one aspect of his priestly office, his intercession. But there's no end to preaching Jesus Christ, is there? There's 280 names alone, names and symbols of Jesus Christ in the Bible. Well, that's 280 sermons right there. <laughs> and, and think of his states and his natures and all that he does for his people. Well, William Perkins, the father of Puritanism, who wrote the first basic, most famous book of homiletics. It's only 200 pages long, very short. The Art, the, the Art of Prophesying. If you've never read it, get it and read it. It's a jewel. But on the very last page... He says something so beautiful. He says in his last sentence of his book, so the summary of my entire book is simply this. And then he puts three phrases in the center of the page that just jump out at you. Preach one Christ. Next line. By Christ. Next line. To the praise of Christ. That's the summary of preaching, he says. When you preach the word, you preach Christ. The New England divine, Cotton Mather, a late Puritan, put it this way. Exhibit as much as you can in your preaching of a glorious Christ. Let the model upon your whole ministry be, Christ is all. 
Let others develop pulpit fads that come and go, but you specialize in preaching our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Christ must be preached for awakening. He must be preached for justifying. He must be preached for sanctifying. He must be preached for comforting sinners. As John puts it, in him is life. In the life was the light of man. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what you have to preach. You make Christ so precious, so glorious, so beautiful for that convicted sinner, that that sinner may behold His glory. And even as you preach Christ objectively, outside of yourself, you make Him so sweet and so so fulfilling, and so meeting the needs of the sinner that the objective truth in the act of preaching, the Holy Spirit takes and applies it subjectively to you so that the hearer cries out, this is exactly the kind of Savior my poor soul needs. And he feeds on Christ. And he leaves the house of prayer and says, truly, the Lord God was in our midst today. We heard our Savior Lift it up once more. And a dear saint in our church, maybe it was a year ago now, you know how people shake hands with a minister when you leave, and uh, some people make good comments, others, well, we won't go there. But this lady stopped me, shook my hand, and she looked up at me and she said, you know, I just figured out you're actually bringing us the same thing every single week. You just keep bringing us Jesus Christ. And then she paused and I looked at her and she said, but you know, I also figured out we need him every week. And we need to hear about him every week. That's it. Isn't that it? Your people... And you yourself, you need Jesus Christ every week. Your boots have gotten muddied the past week by the world and the things of the world and all the indwelling sin that, that you, you're battling. And you need to go to the house of God to hear this full and free salvation once more for the greatest of sinners. And to know Jesus better, not just up here, but in the real Greek and Hebrew way of the word knowing. You know, the word to know in Greek and Hebrew is not like English, where we, we have a real impoverishment with the word to know in English. It's terrible. I know this is a pulpit. I know my wife. I know my God. I know that's a tree outside. What? He has the same word for all of that? In the Greek language, there's many words for to know. But the word to know it's used in John 17, verse 3. This is life eternal. To know God and Jesus Christ is a very intimate word. It's a heart-knowing. It's, it's an intellectual, affectionate, heart-knowing. It's a term of intimacy, actually. In fact, you know, when I grew up, I was convinced as a boy. I remember thinking when I read this uh, encounter with Adam and Eve as they first consummated their marriage, says Adam knew his wife Eve and they conceived and had a son. I actually thought that the word know there was put in there too because they didn't want to be so open and say he had sexual intercourse with her and, 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 and they had a son. But no, that's the biblical term. To know is a term of intimacy. Now, I'm not saying sexually of course not, with, with, with Christ. But spiritual intimacy of closeness, knowing him intimately, knowing him as that friend that sticks closer than a brother, knowing him as that Savior and Lord, that nearest kinsman, so that I can say, for me to live is Christ. Philippians 1.21. That's the goal. That's what you want to work in the lives and hearts of your hearers with the Holy Spirit blessing your, your message. So centering on the written word and the living word preserves 
experiential preaching from all forms of unbiblical mysticism. Mysticism separates experience from the Word of God, whereas historic, reformed conviction demands word-centered, God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, spirit-worked, experiential Christianity. And that kind of preaching, I submit to you, is essential to the health and prosperity of the church of Jesus Christ. That's number one. Spiritual preaching must be word-centered and Christ-centered. Number two, experiential preaching must be applicatory. That is, it must apply, 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 apply the word. So let me put it this way. Picture a tree. The roots, the trunk. Let's say this is a tree called experiential preaching tree. Now, that tree has two big fat branches that grow out of the trunk. There's a fat, fat branch, and there's a fat branch. The fattest branch is the applicatory element of preaching. Applicatory element of preaching. The word application comes from two Latin words, meaning ap, meaning toward, and plico, meaning to fold. So application thus involves joining something to something else. The idea here is that applicatory preaching is the process of riveting truth so powerfully into people that they cannot help but see how they must change and how they can be empowered to change. The Puritan Richard Baxter put it this way, He said, Paul wanted to screw the truth into the hearts and minds of men and women. And it would grieve one to the heart to hear what excellent doctrine some ministers have in their hands, but they let it die in their hands for lack of close, searching, living application. You see, application needs to permeate every part of your sermon. Someone did a study, T.H.L. Parker did a thorough study, probably the best study ever done of Calvin's sermons. And uh, he says in one part, Calvin exegetes the text, but sometimes you want him to exegete it longer, but he seems to be in a rush, in a hurry, to get on to the application. And you can always tell when he's going to apply, because he says, let us learn from this now, to do, or to think, or to say, or let us... Let it, whenever he says let us, he's, he's going to apply it. That's Calvin's style. But that's a style, I mean, different, different emphases, but of, of all the reformers and all the Puritans, they get on to the application. So in preaching, you say, experiential preaching, as, as Robert Burns said in his famous introduction to the complete works of Thomas Halliburton, he said, Thomas Halliburton, he was, Thomas Halliburton was a great Scottish divine who died when he was 39. He was a great preacher. Uh, and and one, he wanted to be buried close by Samuel Rutherford because he wanted to see Rutherford's joy. Rutherford was so Christ-centered. He wanted to see Rutherford's joy in his face when Christ would come in the clouds. And he, he'd be raised at the same time together with him. And uh, I didn't know that story until I was actually in the graveyard. I went to see Samuel Rutherford's, this is a footnote, I went to see Samuel Rutherford's uh, gravestone and a beautiful gravestone with a long poem on it. It's just amazing. But then there's this other gravestone right beside it and and the two gravestones come up and at the top they're about that far apart. I I was with Sinclair Ferguson at the time who was with us on our tour. And I said to Sinclair, well, what's that other gravestone doing so close to Rutherford's? He goes, oh, that's Thomas Halliburton. He wanted to be buried as close as possible to Rutherford. Halliburton was a very godly man. Anyway, so Robert Burns says in the intro to this four-volume set, he said, Halliburton was a man that was known for his experiential preaching, which means that he loved to have Christianity brought home 
to men's bosoms and businesses. I love that expression. To men's bosoms, to your soul, but also to your business, to your daily life, to your work, to your family, your calling. And then Burns goes on to say, he knew that the principle on which Christianity rests is that the truths of the Bible should not only be known and understood and believed, but also felt and enjoyed and practically applied. You see, that's it. You aim to screw truth down deep into men's souls. Richard Baxter said, if only it could be said of more ministers preaching today, that all their doctrine is application, and all their application is doctrine. I tell my students, I used to tell them when I was a, first a teacher, every 10 to 12 minutes you have to have an application. Now, today, I say every 7 minutes, because people's attention span is so short. If you just give them straight doctrine and no application, they'll tune you out after about 7 minutes. You've got to apply the word. So the best way to do that is to exegete the text, explain what the text is saying, and then say to yourself in the study, so what? What does this mean to my people? How can I apply this to my people? What is the most important application to give to my people from this text? And then you apply it. Then you move to your next point, and you apply it. Next point, apply it, and so on. Now, applicatory preaching must be modeled after some of the great preachers of the Bible. And the greatest preacher was, of course, Jesus. Have you ever thought about the Sermon on the Mount? If you count the verses of that sermon, I really should do that sometime, that our application, I'm sure it's over 50%. Over and over and over again, Jesus is saying, here is the truth, and I say unto you, and here's what you need to do with it. And he applies it. And the big application comes at the end. There's only two ways to build a house, on the rock or on the sand. And you're either, you're either in one or the other. So even a cursory look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, or a cursory look at the apostolic preaching in the Acts of the Apostles, think of Peter's sermon uh, in Acts 2. Twelve of the 22 verses are quotations from the Old Testament. He's exegeting it. But the other ten verses are all application, applying it, applying it. You have taken with your own wicked hands the Lord Jesus Christ and crucified him. And they were so smitten in their conscience, they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They felt the application. You've got to apply the word. Charles Bridges, who wrote, I said yesterday, I think the best book on Christian ministry ever, just called The Christian Ministry, uh, has two wonderful chapters, actually, in that book on experiential preaching. Probably the two greatest chapters ever written on the subject. And uh, he says this about application. The method of perpetual application, where the subject will admit of it, is probably best calculated for effect. Applying each head distinctly, addressing separate classes or groups of people at the close of the sermon, in particular with suitable exhortation, warning, or encouragement. What does he mean by that? Well, he means you've got different groups in your audience. You've got the assured believer. You've got the babe in grace. You've got the backslider. You've got the unconverted person that is seeking the Lord and is under impression. And you've got the hardened unbeliever. All of these groups, not in every sermon, but according to, again, according to the text, all of these groups need periodic addressing. You don't just preach to the whole group as if they're all in the same spiritual condition. Yes, some applications can go to the whole congregation. But many of them need to be distinguished in their applications. You don't give meat to babes. You give them milk. You give meat to the mature ones. You preach differently. 
to the backslider, to the worldly-minded, to the afflicted, to the dying believer. So, the Puritan preachers, you've heard this, I'm sure, were nicknamed physicians of the soul because they knew how to apply different medicines, Christological medicines, for the needs of the soul of different kinds of hearers. And in the 100 Puritans who, who were delegated to the Westminster Assembly and wrote directory for the public worship of God, a very famous doctrine, document that should be much better known than it is, the part I'm preaching is just masterful. And in that part, the Puritans, these 100 Puritans say this, he, the preacher, is not to rest in mere general doctrine when he preaches, although that doctrine be never so much cleared and confirmed by him, but he's to bring the doctrine home to special use by application to his hearers, which, albeit it proved to be a work of great difficulty to himself, requiring much prudence, zeal, and meditation, and to the natural and corrupt man may be very unpleasant, yet he is to endeavor to perform it in such a manner that his auditors may feel the word of God to be living and powerful and a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and that if any unbeliever or ignorant person be present, he may have the secrets of his heart made manifest and give glory to God. And then they go on and list different kinds of applications. Confutation, which is refuting contemporary error, exhortation, pressing and admonishing the sheep to obey the imperatives of the scripture, dehortation, rebuking sin, stirring up conviction for its heinousness and hatred for it, comfort, a big one here, encouraging believers to press on in the good fight of faith despite various troubles and afflictions, trial, by that they meant examination, doxological applications, so that people would praise God. Application, application, different kinds of application to different kinds of hearers. William Perkins in his book actually presents you with seven different kinds of hearers and six different categories of applications. Well, if you did that chart, you'd have 42 possible areas of applying, wouldn't you? Now, you never do that all, of course, in one sermon. But you see, the Puritans are such physicians of souls that time and time again, people would leave the house of prayer and say, I felt like the minister was just preaching only to me. In fact, I lost sight. I saw no man save Jesus only. As if God was speaking to me directly in my life. And next hour, I'm going to show you how John Bunyan did that. So that people felt that way. All right. So that's the big fat branch, the fattest. And then you have the other fat branch, which is called discriminatory, discriminatory preaching. That is to say, preaching are the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And with it, the preacher opens the kingdom to true believers and shuts it, even though he invites sinners to repent, he still shuts it in their present state to those who are unsaved, as the Heidelberg Catechism says. By these two keys, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and shut against unbelievers. So discriminatory preaching opens the kingdom of heaven by offering the forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all who embrace Christ as Savior and Lord by true faith. And it shuts the kingdom of heaven by proclaiming the wrath of God and his eternal condemnation upon those who are unrepentant, unconverted, unbelieving, rejecting the offer of grace. Now I mentioned Jesus' Sermon on the Mount already. His Sermon on the Mount is the premier example of discriminatory preaching. Throughout the whole sermon, he's describing two groups of people. The true citizens of the kingdom of heaven begins already with the Beatitudes. Blessed are they who do this. Beatitudes, by the way, are a beautiful summary of all Christian experience. But at the same time, the implication is, cursed are they who are not poor in spirit, who do not mourn over sin, who are not made meek, who do not hunger and thirst after righteousness. And then throughout the whole sermon, 
the whole sermon. Jesus is just going on and separating the ungodly from the godly. The outward legalist from the true believer. Over and over and over again for three chapters. Discriminatory preaching. So discriminatory preaching does a couple of things. Number one, it makes a separation between the church that professes Christ and the outside world that doesn't. Number two, it makes a separation within the church between the nominal professor and the true saving believer. And he gives marks and fruits of grace to help each hearer to examine him or herself in the presence of God under the preaching of the Word of God. Bridges puts it this way. People are described by their state before God as righteous or wicked. He gives texts for all these, by the way. By their knowledge or ignorance of the gospel. By their special regard to Christ. By their interest in the Spirit of God. By their habits of life. By their rules of conduct. By the masters whom they respectively obey. By the road in which they travel. By the ends to which their roads are carrying them. Life or death, heaven or hell. The Bible is constantly, constantly discriminating. And yet you walk into many churches today and the preacher never discriminates. Everybody walks out and they all think they're all saved. And many of their lives don't show it. But Jesus says, many people will be like that on the great day. They'll say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied thy name and thy name done many wonderful works? But he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So discrimination is extremely, extremely important. All right. Number four. Experiential Calvinistic preaching stresses inward knowledge. I'm going to move faster now. Inward knowledge. So we're talking about knowing things, not just in the mind, but in the soul. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. So heart knowledge of God results from an experiential encounter with Christ through the wondrous work of the Spirit who takes the written word and reveals the living word to the soul. And then we taste and see like Jeremiah, we eat the word with delight. It is food for the soul. Thy words were founded, I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. So heart knowledge does not lack head knowledge, intellectual knowledge, but head knowledge may well lack heart knowledge. And head knowledge is never enough for salvation. You have to embrace it, the truth with your inmost being. And so the preacher needs to preach accordingly. He needs to aim for the heart. He needs to make the word of God living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder the inmost soul, exposing the soul before God. So we stand naked before God, needing a Savior. Number five, experiential reform preaching is centered not on self, but on the triune God. A lot of people don't, don't get this. They say because the Puritans or Reformers are talking about what goes on in the soul, they're just introspective. And people shouldn't examine themselves. We have salvation outside of ourselves. No need to examine yourself. That's nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. Do you do that with anything else in your life? Do you do that with your wife? You say, I, I should never examine my marriage, whether it's good or not. As long as we're getting along outwardly, it's okay. No, you want to grow in your marriage, don't you? You want to grow in your relationship with your children, don't you? So you examine yourself. So you do if you want to grow with God. But you don't examine yourself to end in your experience. J.I. Packer put it this way. People 
who think that the Puritans were just navel gazers usually haven't read them. But if they have read them and they still think so, they're misunderstanding them. Because the Puritans weren't interested in just examining, 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 examining ad nauseum. They were interested in tracing out the work of the Holy Spirit in their own souls so that they could give all the glory to God. And isn't it true that when you can see the marks of grace and the fruits of grace in your own soul, and you know, for example, blessed are they the hunger and thirst after righteousness, you know you never would have done that by nature. That's only the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Puritans would say, major premise, only those who are truly saved hunger and thirst after the righteousness of Christ. Minor premise, as I examine my soul, asking the Holy Spirit to shed light upon it, I cannot de but deny, I cannot deny that I, that I do have this hungering and thirsting after the righteousness of Christ. I do want to know him better. I do want to know more about his righteousness. Therefore, I'm a child of God. That's affirming. That buttresses the promises of God by which we get our assurance of faith. Number six, experiential reform preaching aims for balanced preaching. Balance in every area. I stress with you at the beginning, I want to underline it again now, experiential preaching is just one facet of preaching. The Puritans, the Reformers insisted that the minister must preach both objectively and subjectively. Both dimensions of Christianity in a biblical kind of balance. They must preach both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. They must preach both doctrinal Christianity and experiential and practical Christianity. There must be balance here according to the text being expounded. Well, in the next talk, I'm going to go on here and talk about the minister himself and look at John Bunyan with you. What kind of man he must be to really be this kind of experiential preacher. So let me just uh, cut it off right here. Let's have a prayer and um, uh, we'll have a short break and then we'll, we'll carry on. Gracious God, we ask now for thy benediction and a clear understanding of the many thousands and thousands of Reformation and Puritan preachers who all preached experientially and bore so much fruit by the grace of thy Holy Spirit, so many hundreds of thousands of conversions. Oh, show us what we're lacking today, Lord. Show us what we're lacking today and help us to preach to the whole man, not just to the head, but also to the soul and to the affections and to the inmost being of our hearers, including boys and girls and teenagers and adults. Help us, Lord, to be faithful men of God, preaching the whole word with the whole heart to the whole hearer of the whole counsel of God. In Jesus' name, amen.